Well, you can take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 for this morning. And as you're turning up, I'll ask you a question as I often do. Do you trust what you eat? Food is a big deal next to oxygen and water. It's, it's pretty important to our lives. So do you know where you're, what you are eating? And do you know where it is coming from? Today that doesn't seem very possible anymore. We are so far removed from hunting and gathering and getting our own food. The food chain, it's global now. There's no way you can really tell just exactly where your food is coming from. Today we just have to trust. We have to trust the system, the process, those overseeing it. We've got to trust that little sticker on the pack of meat that tells you this has been tested and approved. Someone is watching. It's tested and approved. It wasn't always this way. As you may recall, food became an industry during the Industrial Revolution. For the first time ever, the vast majority of the population was no longer involved in getting their own food. You just bought it. Now you just paid money for it. Food production became an industry, a big industry, and a dirty industry. At first, there were no standards, and some pretty bad things happened. Some of you may recall and have read the book that exposed this industry back in 1906, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Ring a bell? The Jungle exposed the U.S. meat packing industry, specifically in Chicago, like I said, the early 1900s. Sinclair himself was kind of a socialist wacko, and he didn't write to expose the, the food industry. He wrote to expose wage labor. Immigrants were being basically treated as slaves, and he wanted them to get a fair shot, fair labor, and, and that's fine. However, instead of bringing about wage reform, Sinclair brought about food reform. He later wrote, quote, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. End quote. That's because in the jungle, Sinclair gives a shocking behind-the-scenes look at the meatpacking industry, and it's not pretty, or at least it wasn't pretty. He writes, for instance, of meat found stored in huge piles on the floor in these lockers. Water from leaky roofs were dripping all over it, and thousands of rats were all over the place. The workers would put out poison bread for the rats. And then later, the rats, the bread, and the meat were all shoveled together into the hoppers to be processed. For the foulest meat, they called the chemistry department. It's not a good sign. Which then injected the meat with borax and other hazardous chemicals. They colored it brown with gelatin, and they labeled it as smoked ham, and they sold it for more. Much of this meat was given to the U.S. Army, and it was said that more soldiers died from this meat than died from the entire Spanish-American War. And of course, hands down, there was one offense reported in the jungle that sparked a public furor, literally. On the plant floor, there were these open vats for food processing, and on more than one occasion, a worker fell in. And it was instant death, and I'll just say this, don't need to get graphic here, but that meat still went out to market. 
And as you can imagine, the public was outraged over these abuses, and they were all mostly confirmed by later investigations. This led to serious reform, 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act. Later, the formation of the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. This is not the last of the dangerous products that would make it out untested and unapproved. In the late 1920s, a company sold a special water called Radithor. It was advertised as a cure for the living dead. And it, it contained just water, triple distilled water, plus just a little bit of radioactive radium isotopes. And it was pulled from the shelves in 1932 when people started dying from radiation poisoning. And it's amazing what could happen when something was not tested, not approved. It's the same era, by the way, that even the big brands weren't safe. It was during this time, a little bit earlier, that Coca-Cola was forced to change their active ingredient from cocaine to caffeine. Which makes you think, what, what does that say about caffeine, by the way, if it's the replacement for cocaine? But anyway, I mean, all this goes to say that as, as wasteful and as excessive our, as our government may be today, you know, I am thankful for the FDA. Because in this global market, you, you can't trace all your food, all your medicine. I mean, just think of all the pills you take. You have no idea what you're taking. It's just a white pill. You have no idea what you're swallowing, what it's made of, where it came from. You're just trusting. You're trusting, and in a real sense, your life is on the line. We know we can't verify everything we consume by ourselves. So if, if this is just the world we're, we live in, at the very least, give us, give us someone, someone we can trust, someone reputable who can tell us, who can guarantee for us that this product is tested and approved. At the very least, let us know that this food or this drug that is supposed to heal us and not harm us has been tested and approved, that, that we can take this. I tell you all this, of course, as I often do, because there's a real parallel here with spiritual truths. I mean, consider Jesus. He is, we would say, like our, our spiritual food. He's our, our spiritual wonder drug who cures us of an eternal disease. And this eternal life found in Jesus comes by placing your current life in his hands. I mean, your life is on the line, literally. It's in his hands. But can you trust Jesus? Can you trust him to do what he says he will do? I mean, can you really, can you trust him to save you? Your, your life is on the line. It's like with the medicine bottle. Can you trust the label? Is this going to work as advertised? How, how do you know? How do you know Jesus saves? You weren't there. So how can you say? How can you trust? Well, it's true we weren't there. Someone was there, however, and God was there. In the Bible, we have God's own testimony that Jesus is true. More than that, we find that God himself declares Jesus to be tested and approved. Jesus comes to us with God's stamp on him, God's stamp of approval. He is certified, you could say, by God as the Messiah. And so you can trust him. You, you can trust him with your life, and you should. 
for there's no more trustworthy source than God himself. Understand, Jesus does not need to be certified. God does not make Jesus into a worthy Savior. Jesus doesn't need anything. However, God has chosen to display all of the inherent worthiness in Jesus as Savior, and he's revealed that to us. And in our passage in Mark this morning, we come to find that the beginning of Christ's saving ministry is marked by this, by this testing and this approval. As Mark opens up, we've already seen the fact that Jesus is the Messiah already. We see he comes to save. He comes to redeem. He comes to bring good news. But before getting any further into this good news, Mark lets us know that everything we're about to read about Jesus can be trusted. Everything we're going to see him do can be accepted. Because although he had no need of it, Jesus himself was tested and approved by God. And he is therefore, of course, worthy of our lives. Let's read together our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 1. We just started Mark a few weeks ago. Now we're into verses 9 through 15. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we have just started Mark, and we've seen Jesus just barely being introduced. He's been announced. John the Baptist has come. He's paved the way. Now John is about to be taken out of the way, and the rest of Mark is all about Jesus. Jesus and his ministry is center stage. And the passage we have before us transitions us from the time of John to the time of Jesus. We're about to see the work that Jesus came to do. But before we see this, the triune God shows up, so to speak, and certifies that Jesus is Savior. Before this saving work really begins, God lets us know that he can accomplish what he sets out to do. As we will make our way through Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15 now, just by way of a, an outline for you, I want us to observe three perspectives of Christ's ministry. Three perspectives of Christ's ministry as coming from the triune God. We have a, a strongly Trinitarian passage, actually, this morning. 
Each member of the Trinity weighs in. And so we want to see three perspectives of Christ's ministry as coming from the triune God. And the first is this. Number one, the Father speaks and the Son is approved. The Father speaks, the Son is approved. And look again at verse 9 with me. He said, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now off the bat, you might be thinking, wait a second. How can Jesus be approved before he is tested? I mean, isn't it, isn't it the other way around? Isn't he, he supposed to be tested first? And usually, but not for Jesus. Because remember, he doesn't need this. He does not need certification. The ministry of Jesus is not like a car. When a car is assembled and, and put together, you have all these intricate parts being assembled together, you hope it works, but you really don't know that it's going to work until it gets to the end and someone puts the key in the ignition. You just don't really know if it's going to work. And even then, you've got to put it through its paces and run lots of tests. you just got to make sure that it works properly. Jesus is not like that. He was never created. And this is not the start of his ministry. His ministry is eternal. As God, therefore, he does not need certification to get started. Jesus does not need to be tested in order to determine whether or not he can save. No, he he can save. He is able. His testing has another purpose. It comes next. We'll see that shortly. But from the get-go, he's approved. He's approved from the start just because of who he is. God declares and testifies who Jesus is and what he will do. The Son is approved. And we're clued into this by a voice from heaven. And this all starts at the baptism of Jesus. Verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. As we learned last week, John the Baptist foresaw someone coming after him, one who is mightier than him, one who would come baptizing the Holy Spirit. And verse 9 makes crystal clear, in case you were wondering, that this one is Jesus. And who, who is Jesus? Who, who is this figure? I mean, just imagine, if you're reading the book of Mark for the first time, and you've never heard of Jesus before. Just imagine that. Who, who is he? And here, so far, we've learned very little about Jesus. Remember, Mark He tells us almost no background about Jesus. We don't hear about his birth, his adolescence, childhood. We don't know what high school he went to. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know what he wore. We don't know what his occupation or hobbies were. Mark doesn't tell us nearly any background. He does that because he wants us to see Jesus through the lens of his ministry, and that's to come. But here in verse 9, we get a little bit of background, just a little bit. We find out where he's from. We find out where he's from. And where is he from? What does it say? He's from nowhere. 
And you may be thinking, no, that doesn't say that. It says Nazareth and Galilee. Like I said, nowhere. This was a small, middle-of-nowhere podunk town. It was just a meaningless, insignificant town. Nazareth didn't even get a mention in the Old Testament. It is so small and insignificant. It'd be like saying that Jesus came from Weaverville, California. Exactly, right? Strangely enough, I have a friend in Weaverville, but most of you probably don't. Never heard of it. And clearly this Jesus, whoever he is, he's not like the religious leaders of the South. Interesting, he doesn't come like one of these pompous Pharisees from Jerusalem. He comes from this small, rural town in the Gentile-dominated north. He's got very humble beginnings. It almost clues you in on what type of ministry this Jesus will have. You think it will be characterized by, by pomp and circumstance or by humility and service. Anyway, Jesus comes, and before we see him baptized with the Holy Spirit, first we see him, verse 9, get baptized by John in the Jordan. Now here you might be having another question. Okay, wait a second. Again, why is Jesus being baptized by John? I mean, shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, after all, do you remember what we learned about John's baptism last week? Very significant. John's baptism was essentially an admission of guilt. If you went down to the Jordan, you listened to John preach, you accepted, and you got baptized by him, you were essentially admitting that you were a sinful, unrighteous, guilty sinner before God. You were admitting your, your guilty status before God, and you needed this repentance, this washing that John provided. But if that's the case, why is Jesus going to John and getting baptized? I mean, does this mean that Jesus is admitting guilt? I mean, how would you answer that question? Is Jesus admitting guilt by getting baptized by John? The answer is yes. Yes, he is. Jesus is being baptized by John because he's admitting guilt, but not not his own guilt and not his own sin. He does not have any. Rather, he is confessing ours. Jesus is being baptized by John because as Savior, he comes to stand in our place. That's the whole point of everything. He comes to stand in our place. He begins his ministry by undergoing a baptism that we deserve. And he ends his ministry by undergoing a death that we deserve. And this concept is called substitution. So I would refer to his death as a, have you heard this before? A substitutionary atonement. Sounds confusing until you just break it down. It means he stood in our place. If you remember in the Old Testament, God provided a means of atonement, meaning a means where people could be forgiven, They would not have to pay the penalty for their own sin. They could be let go, so to speak. And the means back then was animal sacrifice. The sacrificial system. The bull or the goat would be slain. It would spill its blood, paying the penalty of death that you deserved, and you would would go free. But as we know, this was never enough. It was never enough because the blood of 
bulls and goats cannot actually pay for the sins of humans. It's not a, it's not a one-to-one sacrifice here. If God was to truly atone for our sins, then a true substitute sacrifice was needed, and that's Jesus. That's why he came. He came as a true man so that he could stand in the place of men and women. And he came also as true God so that he could actually bear the infinite weight of sin and actually pay for sin. It is only by this payment for sins that we can actually be saved. Jesus takes our sin. We take his righteousness. God can therefore accept us. And this is the only way to be saved. This comes by God's grace through our faith. And so we find that faith in Christ as the perfect substitute sacrifice, that's the key that unlocks the door of salvation. All this being said, as Jesus gets baptized by John, we see also just what kind of Savior he will be. He doesn't come with a sword or with an army, with fire. He comes in humility, assuming the place of sinners, standing where they should be standing, in the muddy Jordan River. And just as he is dunked in the polluted river, so later he will be dunked in the sins of the world on the cross. And it's no wonder that later in Mark, Jesus himself refers to his death on the cross as a baptism. Now, much of what I've been saying doesn't actually come from verse 9 of chapter 1 in Mark. You get it from Matthew and Luke and the other New Testament references. And that's because Mark, he's given us the short version. Mark, he tells that the fast-paced, it's the action movie version of, of Christ's life. It's very fast, a lot of action. And that's why you see this word immediately everywhere. Here he's just telling the simple fact of the baptism of Jesus. And then it's on to the next event, just immediately. You see that? Look at, look at verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, all hell breaks loose. The picture here, it's as if all heaven is breaking loose. So the heavens are being torn open. And now there's nothing separating God and his special presence from earth. And first, the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. By no means does this indicate that Jesus did not have the spirit of God in him before this point. He is God. He is never separated from the spirit. However, he came as the Christ, the Messiah. Do you remember what that means? The word itself actually means the anointed one. And that's what's happening here with the Spirit. He's being anointed for ministry. Just as David was anointed by the Holy Spirit to prepare him to be the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, so here Jesus is being anointed by the Spirit. In fact, he comes as the long-awaited or rather long-awaited, anointed one, which means the Messiah. He is 
that promised ultimate Davidic king. That's what's going on here. Most likely, the dove was chosen as a symbol of gentleness and peace, although everyone has their own opinion. The Bible doesn't really say. But we know what happens next. After Jesus is anointed, God speaks. And look at verse 11. After this, a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And this is huge. The Jews believed that God had stopped speaking long ago, centuries ago, with the last of the prophets. And God now could only be heard in a, in a distant echo. But here we see God speaking again. The heavens are, are just torn open. God is right there, and he speaks. And what does he say? He speaks his divine approval of Jesus. God purposely uses Old Testament prophetic language. And everything God said in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills. He is the beloved son. He is the promised messianic Davidic king. Everything God says, it's heavy laden with references to the enthronement of the Messiah from the Old Testament. And God is saying, let it be known, this is the one. Remember the one that John was talking about? This is the one. This is the one who will deliver his people, who will rule over his people. Mark, in his gospel, he doesn't bother telling us what Jesus looked like, what he wore, what his hobbies were, because that doesn't really tell you who he is and what his ministry is about. If you want to know who Jesus is and what his ministry is all about, this is all you need. Just, just listen to God. Just listen to God. There's no better perspective on the ministry of Jesus than this. God speaks, and the Son is approved. He is the King who will please God and save His people. God speaks, the Son is approved. It's not the only perspective we see here, though, of Christ's ministry. A second one comes to mind. Now in verses 12 and 13. Secondly now, the Spirit moves, the Son is tested. The Spirit moves, the Son is tested. Mark doesn't waste a moment. He jumps right in, immediately, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. The spirit which anoints Jesus for ministry immediately begins that ministry, impels him to go out into the wilderness to be tested. Some, some coronation for the new king. I mean, there's no party. There's no celebration. It's immediately into the fire and he is tested. As we learned last Sunday, the wilderness... It's a very significant and meaningful place for the Jews. Jesus was already in the Judean wilderness when he was baptized by John. But here he goes further, deeper into the the barren wasteland. Where does he go? We don't know. Some think he went all the way south, even to Mount Sinai, 
retracing the steps of Moses and Israel in the wilderness, but the Bible doesn't say. We don't know. Either way, the wilderness setting, though, was no accident. Remember, the Jews understood what the wilderness represented. It was God's testing ground for his people. This is where God brought them after the exodus, before leading them to the promised land. The wilderness came first. They had to be tested. The same happens with Jesus. One key difference, however, is that Jesus did not need to be tested to determine if he was worthy. Remember, he was approved first. Testing comes second. And he already was worthy. He came worthy. But he is tested nonetheless, nonetheless, not to determine, but to demonstrate his worth and his power, his ability to save. Not to determine, but to demonstrate. For Jesus, this testing came through Satan. This is the first time, but not the last, that we encounter Satan in Mark. The word Satan means adversary. He is God's great adversary. He's the first and the greatest of the fallen angels. He leads the world in rebellion against God. And Satan constantly opposes God's rule. So is it any wonder that he comes opposing God's ruler? And he does so through temptation. From God's perspective, this was a test that Jesus could not fail, which would in turn demonstrate his supreme worth as son and savior. Yet from Satan's perspective, this was a real temptation. He was trying to take Jesus down and to lure him into sin. However, Mark says nothing more about what went on. You've got to go to Matthew or to Luke to see some of the details Christ's response, like we did in scripture reading. One thing, though, from the way that Mark phrases this, we actually learn of the possibility that Satan tempted Jesus throughout the entire 40-day period, not just at the end. We typically think from Matthew and Luke that he was tempted at the end as a culmination, but it's very possible that he was tempted all the way throughout in Mark leaves that possibility open. Whatever the case, Jesus endured, never sinned. He never fell prey. And as Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says, Satan then left him until an opportune time. This was the first but not the last time that Satan would afflict and tempt Jesus. Now separately, if you'd like to learn more about this temptation, what it meant for Jesus whether or not he could have sinned? That's a question we just asked, answered in extreme detail a few Sunday mornings ago. And if you want to learn about that, just go online, get the second Q&A sermon from just a few weeks ago. We talked about this in great detail. I'll leave that to you for later. But back to Mark. As you can see, he's brief, but there's one little detail in here that Matthew and Luke don't even have. He says that during this 40-day trial, Jesus was with the wild beasts. It's unique to Mark. He was with the wild beasts. Out in the wilderness, not much lived. But everything that did live seemingly wanted to kill you. From boars to jackals to wolves to foxes to leopards, hyenas, worst of all, lions. 
I mean, lions, we can't, we can't picture this, but they were a serious threat in the ancient world. And two-thirds of, of the Old Testament books mention lions. I mean, can you imagine living in a territory that, that still was infested with lions? Imagine if the San Luis Hills still had lions and leopards in them. Would you go hiking and mountain biking and out for a stroll? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Have you heard of these motion-activated wilderness cameras? They have these cameras, they're setting up a lot of them now in the wilderness, and they're, they're used to record wildlife. But they only turn on and start recording when they detect motion. So they're perfect for catching an animal as it strolls by. And so they set up one of these in, in a popular California forest hiking trail, and, and you watch it, you see you know, hikers, campers pass through every now and then. Lots of other wildlife pass through. And then you see the bears. And there's a lot of bears. There's a lot of bears that pass through this trail. In fact, they, you see bears showing up just an hour before or an hour after humans just, just walked right past that, that spot. We just, we just don't know what's out there. and Sometimes it's better not to know. It's better not to know and pretend there's nothing there. But Jesus, he was in a true, unadulterated wilderness for 40 days. No tent. There's no camping gear. There's no sleeping bag. All the while, he was fasting. So at least he didn't have to worry about finding his food, but nonetheless. And we see that the wilderness environment with its wild beasts, it just highlights the idea of desolation and danger in Christ's temptation. This was a real paradise lost. This was a, all the more so the realm of Satan. The danger was real everywhere spiritually and physically. But Jesus was not entirely alone, for we learn in Mark also that the angels were ministering to him. That's a good thing. How? We don't know. I mean, were they protecting him from the wild beasts? Entirely possible. We just don't know. Some think that they provided Jesus food both before and after the 40-day fast. Makes sense because the same thing happened to Elijah in the Old Testament. The angels came and ministered to him, giving him food to prepare him for his 40-day wilderness journey and fast. Very similar. But we don't know for sure. The details are unknown, but the details we do know in this in this little passage, they might make you think, you know, why is this here? Mark only gives us two verses. It seems, seems so random in a way. I mean, he's so brief with this temptation, but he includes some very specific details. Of what, what's going on? What, what is the point of this? Why is this here? And all, although it is short, when you, when you start to study, you realize this, this is not random. It's not in here just for the fun of it. Although occupying just a few verses this temptation of Jesus and its circumstances is very significant. For here we find Jesus fulfilling part of his mission and revealing part of his role. Who did Jesus come as? The Savior? Yes. The Son of God? Of course. But also the second Adam. He came as the second Adam. And let me explain. 
And several passages speak of Jesus as being like Adam. Adam was the first man. Jesus is the second man, the last man, the ultimate man. Jesus came sharing Adam's humanity. Jesus is a true man, just like Adam was a true man before the fall with no sin nature. That's Christ had that same human nature, a pre-fall human nature. But we know Adam didn't stay that way. And after the fall, he plunged himself and all of humanity into death because Adam was the head of humanity. He was the representative of humanity. And to undo this, to undo this fall, therefore, a new head is needed. You need a new representative for humanity. And that is Jesus. Jesus came to undo what Adam did to resolve the sin problem. And so he came as the perfect man, the second man, so to speak, who would give life and not death to those under him. 1 Corinthians 15.22, for example, says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Along these lines, we see many parallels between Adam and Jesus in the New Testament. And one parallel in particular is this temptation. This is a real parallel here. And notice, both were tempted by Satan to disobey God. And both were tempted by Satan to not believe God and his word. Just think about this. What were the last words ringing in the ears of Jesus as he went out into the wilderness to be tempted? What were the last words coming from God, as far as we know, ringing in his ears? They were, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. Spoken by God the Father himself. Shortly thereafter, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. He encounters Satan. And what does Satan say to him? Like we learned in Matthew, Matthew 4, 3. First thing he says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Do you see what's going on? I mean, Satan is essentially trying to make Jesus doubt what God had just said. You're not really the the son of God, are you? I mean, come on. If you are, then you've got to prove it. Do this. Do that. And several times. It's the same temptation. But this is where the similarities end. For Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation, Jesus did not. And it's not like Adam and Eve could blame it on their environment. They were in the perfect Garden of Eden, the lush Garden of Eden. They had all the food they needed. They were in perfect harmony with the animals. They had fellowship with one another. They weren't alone. They had everything. Jesus, on the other hand, he was in a barren wasteland. He had not eaten for 40 days, and he was alone. Yet as the perfect man, Jesus trusted not his hunger, not his appetites. He trusted God's word. And he relied on God's word. Jesus succeeded in every way where Adam failed, proving he has the right and the ability to be man's true head and representative. As his ministry is set to begin, although he has no inherent need for 
testing. Jesus is put through the paces. He's tested, but he comes out perfect. We find then that Jesus is tested and approved. He can save. He can redeem Adam's fallen race. And the only thing left now, after being tested and approved, is for Jesus to be presented. And this is the third last perspective on Christ's ministry that we want to identify now. Thirdly, the son preaches, the son is presented. The son preaches, the son is presented. All three members of the Trinity, like I said, weighing in on Christ's ministry. Look at verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. With Jesus being tested and approved, it's time now for him to be presented to the world. And that's what we see for the rest of the gospel of Mark. He did not come to hide his light under a basket, but to let the world know. And the time for that is now. Mark picks up the ministry of Jesus, like verse 14 says, after John had been taken into custody. That's something we'll see next week, the Galilean ministry. I'll tell you about that next week. But the turning point here was the arrest of John the Baptist. We see that the work of the forerunner was complete. We also learn that John preceded Jesus in more ways than one. Not only in life, but also in death. And John presented a kingdom that the world wanted nothing to do with, so they, they eventually killed him over. It makes you think, well, what are they going to do to the king who comes preaching that same kingdom? And we know how the story ends, but it's all part of God's sovereign plan. You see in verse 14 where it says John had been, quote, taken into custody. The word in the Greek is paradidomai, which literally means being handed over, one being handed over to another. And that same word that's used of John here, the same word is used of Jesus several times in Mark. As we know, he too is handed over. He will be handed over also to ungodly men to be put to death. But Mark and Scripture makes clear that, yeah, men were responsible for the death of Jesus, but ultimately, God handed him over. God was behind his death. God gave his son. He sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Of course, we will see much of that to come. But here we see Jesus coming into Galilee now. He's preaching the gospel of God. The fact that he's preaching the good news lets you know, in case you're wondering, that Jesus was not defeated by Satan in the wilderness. Otherwise, there would be no good news. Rather, he was victorious, and now he stands announcing that the time of God is at hand. And what does John preach? Or rather, what does Jesus preach? And Mark captures the essence of his message coming from Christ's own mouth. Verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
you'll note that the gospel preaching of John and Jesus, it never included the cross. How could it? The cross did not happen yet. Atonement had not been provided for yet. So we don't find Jesus preaching Romans 10.9 that if you confess that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The death and resurrection hadn't happened. It cannot be preached. Immediately, though, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit opened the mind of the apostles to realize that this, this is it. This is the real good news, the death and resurrection of the Savior. That's the key to unlocking salvation now. And no one can be saved now apart from confessing this. No turning back the clock now. To be saved, you must go through the door of Jesus. And that now is a, is a crucified and resurrected Jesus. But during his time on earth, the preaching of Jesus was much like the preaching of John. He was aligning people to God. He was setting them back on the path of God. And this is why we see Jesus picking up John's message of repentance and belief. Turn away from your sins. That's repentance. Turn away from what you're living for, your rebellion against God, yourself, and then turn toward God. And that is faith. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. They always go together, and they function to set you on the right path. You can't go left and right at the same time. Or up and down. You can only travel one path at once. At once. The problem is that all people after Adam are traveling on the path of destruction. And that's why Jesus calls us to repent. Turn from your ways and your sin and get back to God. Return to him. For it is in him that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand. Mark does not elaborate here about this kingdom. What is it? We'll come to see. Time will tell in the gospel of Mark. But for now, you know for certain, Jesus says it's coming. It's near. It is at hand. And most of all, the kingdom comes with the king. If only the people had eyes to see, they would have realized that the kingdom and the king was standing right before them. Jesus is the coming king. He's tested. He's approved. And from then on, he has been presented. He is the God-certified Messiah, the triune God-certified Messiah. Yet amazingly, the people would not accept him. Even though he was approved by God, he was rejected by men, even killed. What about you, though? Do you accept this king? Or do you join those who have rejected him? Are you still living this life for yourself, your ways, your your sin? Or have you also repented and turned to Christ as king, Lord of your life? You follow him. Today, you all are in a very privileged position You know the whole picture. You've got the complete revelation of God just sitting in your hands. So what is your excuse? Jesus is presented to you. He's tested and approved. He is king. 
So do you bow the knee or not? We're not talking about you know, praying a sinner's prayer, signing a card, doing an altar call. We're talking about repentance and belief. And consider the path of your life. Is it for God or against God? Do you live in submission to God's will and God's ways, following the king? Or do you live in submission to your own will and your own ways, following yourself? The king has been presented. He's always presented. And you need to follow. I urge you to consider. What have you done with Jesus? Do you follow him? It is the only way to life, to atonement, to salvation. At the same time, I want you also to consider this as you reflect on this passage. You just imagine, imagine you're a scientist. And you're trying to find the, the cure for male pattern baldness. It's a valiant effort, and I hope it gets done before it's too late for me someday. So you, you come up with a little drug, you give it a test, you have a test subject, and you discover that you have not cured male pattern baldness. But you discover on accident that you may have found the cure to cancer. I mean, could this be true? This is amazing. Everybody needs to know about this. But before you tell anyone, you think, wait, no, I've got to, I've got to test this. I've got to be sure about this. So you run trial after trial verifying that your drug works. You let the government in so they can do their tests and verify things. Finally, after years of due diligence, you have it. You've done it. The cure for cancer. It's tested. It's approved. This is amazing. That can truly change the world. So what do you do next? Well, you take this new wonder drug and you lock it in a safe and you never tell anyone, ever. Hey, wait a second. Who would do that? No one would do that. Even the most wicked person would at least try and get rich off of it. But no one would just keep silent over it. Yeah, how many Christians are just like this? You have in your possession the cure for death, for eternal death. But do you keep it to yourself? You never even give it a mention to all the, the dying people in the world around you. And that's all of us. And do you see the problem with that? I mean, true, you didn't, you didn't do anything special yourself. It's not your cure. You, you didn't invent this. You didn't produce this. It is Christ's cure, so to speak. But it doesn't matter. The secret is out. It's yours to share. So what are you waiting for? You also need to be presenting the Son. Jesus did not come so that he could hide his light, but that rather it would be shared. And the same needs to be true of you. For those who have received the light, you need to let it shine and share it. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He can save. And all that's left now is for him to be presented to the world and shared with as many people as you can. I want you just to think of that one person you know. You know someone. The friend, the relative, the neighbor, whatever. You know someone, and you know that they need to know about the Lord, but you're scared. Think about that person and resolve in your heart. I need to just 
present the son to them. I need to just tell them about Jesus. I, I have to do it. Fear often comes into play, but you can't be driven by fear. Instead, overcome that fear with, with joy. You, you have to be so overjoyed in the Lord that you can't help but tell someone. You can't help but share. You can't help but speak. It's like you're a cup and you're filled to the brim with joy in the Lord. And when someone just bumps into you, you're going to overflow. You can't help it. It's just there. It's in you. It's going to come out. That's what you need to focus on. This is all just the beginning in Mark. Have we not just scratched the surface? Barely into chapter 1. There's so much more to come, but I hope as we progress and we see more of the Savior, and that's all we're going to see, more of the Savior, that you would grow in your joy and your excitement over Him. I pray that as we learn more, that God would build not just your knowledge, but your joy in the Son who saved you, for He's worthy to be praised He's worthy to be presented. Let's pray. God in heaven, we have to confess it is true. You and your son is worthy to be presented. The world must know. This is the best news. The Savior has come. That The cure for death is here. We confess the weight of our sin. I pray we all know that how, how guilty we are. Our sins go before us and there is nothing we can do about them. We stand before you guilty, condemned, justifiably so. And the only hope is this atonement, this atonement from this substitute, the substitute, Jesus, the God-man. Lord, we have to say again, thank you for sending your son into the world to die for us, to stand in our place, both in the muddy Jordan and on the dirty cross, to live and die for us that we might be forgiven 100%. We live based on this atonement. And so now we give you our life. How, how worthy are you of our lives and of our, of our voices? How can we not now, Lord, present this good news to others? I pray for those here who are scared, we know the fear of man goes before us. It, it can be frightening. I pray for those, Lord, that you build a greater joy in their heart to overpower that, that little bit of fear. And may we all be excited in the Lord and joyful in the Lord that we can't help but letting the world know. And I, I really pray, Lord, that this community and that the city around us is transformed by the light that we possess. We cannot just keep it in these four walls. We must let the world know and give us grace to do so and to be bold for your name's sake. The Son is tested. He is approved. just needs to be presented more and more. And we do that now. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.